coming to the end of the retreat, especially one this long, it's always a delicate time. You're much more sensitive and open than might be apparent. But sitting here, sitting and walking, being so involved in the ups and downs of your experience, sometimes one loses sight or loses loses the sense of just how open one has become after six weeks or three months of silence. So in the next days and even weeks after the retreat, be prepared for some surprises. There are a lot of swings that take place when a retreat ends. You know, there are cycles of concentration. Sometimes it will be really strong. Sometimes it feel like you haven't sat at all. Now, the mindfulness may be very keen. Sometimes you feel like you've lost it. There'll be a tremendous swing of mood. You know, there'll be tremendous excitement and enthusiasm, and then there'll be the crash. You know, and you'll feel depressed and lonely and alienated, and then you'll feel loving and compassionate. And, and it just goes up and down like this, and this is what happens. And it happens to almost everyone. You need a lot of patience. You need to understand that this is what often characterizes the transition time. And again, after a long retreat, the transition time can be weeks afterwards. And so the time that's coming up is really a practice in itself, you know, of learning to stay balanced in the midst of all these cycles, in the midst of all these ups and downs. Remember in the early days when I had been practicing in India a lot, and then I would have to come home for one reason or another, it was really difficult because not only was I going from intensive practice to being in the world and working, but I was also it was a culture shock being having been in India years and then coming back to America. I was just really depressed. You know, I'd just be listening to Bob Dylan and just waiting, you know, <laughs> to get back <laughs> to India. Because you can still listen to Bob Dylan <laughs> thirty years later. It did get easier, you know, having made the transition many, many times, in retreat and out of retreat, it does get somewhat easier with practice, but it still requires a real attentiveness. So the question I would really like to explore tonight is how we can bring our practice, bring our understanding into the world. how we can bring our Dharma practice into our lives and make our lives our practice. So it's not something that's fragmented. It's not as if there are two parts to ourselves, our meditation and the rest of our lives. But we really come to see how they're aspects of the same unfolding path. And the challenge for us is to understand how we can do this practically, 
rather than simply have it as a nice idea, oh yes, my life is my practice, but then not actually be doing it, living it in that way. But how can we accomplish this understanding? There are two important and interrelated principles we need to ground our understanding in. The first is that when we practice, our wisdom grows. And when we don't practice, it wanes. So it's not that our wisdom and understanding is something we have and we can hold and we can keep. Rather, it's something alive within us. And when we continue our practice, it continues to grow. And when we don't practice, then it becomes a memory. And it does not have the same vitality in our experience. The corollary of this is that the same right effort that's needed on retreat, and we've talked so much about, the same right effort is needed outside of retreat. We can't assume that, yes, I've done six weeks or three months of practice, and then the momentum of that will then carry me for the rest of my life. We can build on that momentum, but we need to keep that same quality of right effort. The Dalai Lama spoke to this in a very apt way. He said, within a short time span, it is impossible to change all our concepts or the entire attitude of our mind. It needs constant application. Speaking from my own small experience, from the age of about 16 or 17, I began to make some serious effort to change and improve my outlook. Now at 55, some 30, 39 years have gone by. Several decades have passed, yet still the result is not satisfactory. We do have to work hard, and that is the reality. So we may have a different assessment of the Dalai Lama's progress. <laughs> But I think the point is clear. It takes ongoing application. And so we need to we need to really let that in and understand it. So what is the right effort? What is the practice that we bring into our lives? The Buddha spoke to it very clearly. He talked of three fields of training. And these are the three fields of training that we can apply and make right effort in our lives to develop. The first of them is the training in sila, the commitment to non-harming. It means that we need to pay attention to our actions, to our actions in the world. And we can do this in different ways. We can pay attention to our actions by watching how they affect our quality of mind, what mind states are being developed in the very ordinary activities of our lives. You know, when we're eating, when we're talking, in our relationships, at work, what are the mind states that are being practiced? Because every mind state that is arising we are practicing. It is getting strengthened. 
So we want to really be aware of what those mind states are. Are they skillful? Are they unskillful? What's so amazing to, to realize, and I'm sure you're familiar with this, is the incredibly powerful force of habit. There's a, a concept which the biologist Rupert Sheldrake talked about, called it morphic resonance. And as he described it, he was talking about phenomena in nature, and he was pointing out the examples of how once something happens in nature, when it happens once, it becomes that much more likely for that same thing or phenomena to happen again. It may take a long, long time for it to arise the first time, but after it first arises, then it happens more easily. And we can see this in ourselves, both in the skillful and unskillful actions that we do. Every time we do something, it makes it easier for that same thing to arise again. Habit is very strong. And so it becomes such a force for the good when we establish ourselves in skillful habits. But this means paying attention to our actions so we can actually see what's going on in our minds as we engage in very ordinary activities. So we watch the effect of actions on our minds. We can watch the effects of our action on other people. And we really, we really pay attention. Are we acting from a place of kindness? Acting from a place of non-harming? We can also pay attention to the long-range consequences of our actions, the karmic results. Now this is more subtle because it means that we need to be aware of the motivations behind the actions, because that's what determines the karmic result. That's really what determines the moral worth of an action. We discover it in the motivation. So as we're going through our day, through our lives, a training in sila at this level of subtlety means the training in paying attention to what's motivating us. One way of practicing this practically is through attention to and a training in the precepts. The precepts are a tremendously helpful framework for really looking at our lives, looking at our actions. Now they're guidelines for us when we're uncertain. We're confused about whether we should do something or not do something, but we don't know. Is it skillful? Is it unskillful? Well, we could check it against the five precepts. That becomes a little illumination for us. The precepts are a protection against the tremendously seductive power of Mara. You know, where unwholesome mind states come masquerading as wholesome ones. 
we need to be we need to be watchful. And I love the line in the suttas you know, where the, the Buddha will be talking, and then Mara will appear in one form or another, trying to seduce the Buddha you know, in some way, some unskillful state. And the Buddha, the, the comment in the suttas, is the Buddha always you know, looking at Mara. I see you. So I have this image in my mind of the Buddha wagging the finger at Mara. <laughs> oh, Mara, I see you. Well, we can practice that, and the precepts provide a, a guide for us. Ajahn Sumedho expressed this training in Sila so well. He said that it's not a question of following our hearts, but training our hearts. And I think that points to such a critical distinction. Because as we know, and as we've seen, not everything that arises in our hearts are skillful or wholesome. There's a lot motivated by greed, or by anger, or by ill will, or by fear. It's not simply a question of following our heart. We need to train our hearts. One way of training our hearts is to look carefully at each of the five precepts and really see how they can be refined. And we're all basically good people. But it's been, it's been inspiring to see that each of these precepts, which has a very kind of common sense application in our lives, can also be refined. We can get such a subtle understanding of their application and it becomes a, a place of great beauty for us. the first precept of not killing. Now, obviously, not killing other people, although in the world that's not so obvious. You know, a lot of people are going around killing other people. Just imagine what the world would be like if everyone simply followed that one precept. It would be a, it would be a radically different place. But it's not just not killing other people. It's also not killing animals, you know, for livelihood of the sport. It's not killing things we don't like, sharing our space. Don't think of them as agreeable or beautiful, like spiders, cockroaches whatever your particular thing is. You know, our whole culture is kill and destroy, Roach Hotel. <laughs> I mean, is it possible just to begin to practice a reverence for all life forms and when possible, instead of killing, remove? It's not ne necessary that we have to the word cohabit. But are there alternatives besides killing? It raises some interesting and difficult ethical questions, because sometimes it's not a very clear alternative. You know, what do you do when carpenter ants are kind of eating up your home? Be happy, be happy. <laughs> Please find another wood pile. <laughs> you know, what do you do? Or what do you do with, you know, in areas where there are malaria mosquitoes, having mosquitoes having the disease? And sometimes 
it is a question. And given the greater good, it seems that, that killing is the more compassionate response, given the greater suffering that may be prevented. But it takes a lot of care to really be sensitive to that question. So we're not just doing it out of convenience and the likes. And even when actions like that are necessary, can we do it with as much compassion as possible? So the precepts are really about making us conscious. They're not commandments, which I think is an important distinction. They're rules of training to wake us up and so that we act with as much kindness and compassion as possible. And not stealing. And again, on the positive side, it really has to do with a level of contentment. And we live more simply. Refraining from sexual misconduct. It's a big area in people's lives. And as we all know, it's tremendously powerful energy, very seductive, very energizing. You know, we, we often feel most alive when we're feeling that passion, sexual desire. So somehow we have to bring that into the domain of our spiritual practice, not something outside of it, it's not something apart from it for us as lay people. So it means bringing attention. How are we using that energy? Are we using it in ways that are unskillful? You know, that are causing harm either to ourselves or to somebody else? Are we using it in ways that are dishonest or exploitive? I think my favorite line of translation, Burmese English translation, came when Upandita was talking about desire. He was going on and on and on and on and on in Burmese. And then the translator summed up what he said, lust cracks the brain. (laughs) 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 And it really captured it. (laughs) Lust cracks the brain. It can. I mean, we all know, you know, either personally in our own experience or people we know of how much suffering has been caused by not paying attention to this precept of refraining from sexual misconduct, that is conduct that causes harm. So we need to bring that in to our understanding of the path as well. Refraining from wrong speech. This precept has tremendous application in our lives. It's one of the most fruitful arenas of mindfulness and has so much power to wake us up in the midst of our ordinary life situations. Now the Buddha talked of right speech as being one element of the Eightfold Path. In the list of ten unwholesome actions, Buddha said to avoid, speech constitutes four of them, four of the ten. So this is a huge area. This is not some little um, by lane 
on the spiritual journey. This is a big part and it has so much fruit as we practice it in our lives. Because we talk a lot, not here. <laughs> but starting tomorrow. It means refraining from lying, refraining from all speech. Of course, lying has many gradations. Sometimes it's the kind of big, the big whoppers. You know, just a blatant lie. Sometimes there's kind of smaller lies, even exaggerations, a slight untruth. It's helpful to look at the motivations behind saying something which isn't true. Why <coughs> do we do it? Is it <coughs> for greed because we want something? Is it out of self-aggrandizement in some way? Is it because we're protecting ourselves, some idea of ourselves, or we think we're protecting others? Lying is a tremendous disservice because it really diminishes a person's ability to trust themselves. They may have a perception of what's true. And if we're not speaking the truth, if we're lying, then they begin to doubt their own perceptions. And it just causes a tremendous amount of confusion. You know, I've told of the stories of the Buddha in his previous lives as a bodhisattva. He said that from the time of the prediction that he would become a Buddha in the future, that from that time, in the many, countless lifetimes of Bodhisattva, he did many misdeeds. Not that he lived the perfect life from that time, he was perfecting the quality of a Buddha, but it said from that moment, he never knowingly said that which is untrue. such a powerful pole star in our lives, to guide us. And what's so surprising is that something so simple should be so difficult to do. Just to simply say that which is true and not to say that which is untrue, impeccably. But it's an inspiring practice so that, that becomes our reference point. Of course, the Buddha clarified it further when he said, really the guideline for right speech is saying that which is true and that which is useful. Because something could be true and in the moment not particularly useful to say. To refrain from untruth. Tremendously powerful practice in our lives. Refraining from harsh and angry speech, you know, aggressive speech. How do we like it when we're the recipient of it? Not pleasant. You know, and generally what happens is we put up a wall of defense because it's an aggressive energy coming at us. Not that helpful for open communication. So we also want to watch how we speak because other people will do the same. The Buddha talked of how aggressive or harsh speech is really the, the cause of a lack of beauty. And we can see it in the worlds we create when we, when we speak with a lot of harshness or anger or aggression. It's as if we're creating for ourselves an ugly world. 
and kind speech, gentle speech, really creates a world of beauty. These are not abstractions. Now the Buddha is pointing out that these areas of speech have tremendous impact on our own minds, on the minds of people around us, on the environment in which we live. And not speaking untruth, not harsh speech. The Buddha talked in this training, Sila, talked of not using speech that's gossip or backbiting. And what's so striking, first is how common it is when, when we notice the patterns of our speech, how much of the time we're speaking about other people, maybe not even maliciously. But what's the point? Sometimes I wonder, well, what, what's the pleasure that we get? basically gossiping about others because there must be some pleasure involved since it's so prevalent and I think it's somehow about reaffirming a sense of self somehow as we're speaking with whatever judgments or assessments or comments about other people in some way it's bolstering some ego sense within ourselves For the most part, it's really not productive, it's not helpful, it's often the cause of great divisiveness. About ten years ago, somebody came and interviewed me for a book on, at that time, the development of Buddhism in the West. He was kind of a journalist type. And he came in the interview and he just wanted my you know, opinion about all my colleagues, my Buddhist colleagues across the country. Of course, I had my views and opinions about almost everybody. <laughs> but um, fortunately, I could just was mindful enough to really see what he was doing, you know, and kind of just playing to that great seductive uh, interest of being able to express my views. And I just didn't, I didn't buy in, and I was so happy because. When the book came out, I saw, you know, everything I had said that I did say was in print. You know, and I realized I really saved myself a lot of distress. <laughs> we don't have to give voice to everything we think and feel. It's a wonderful practice. It's a practice of restraint that really serves us, it allows us to stay in a much quieter place, peace within ourselves. In the last kind of talk the Buddha suggested that we refrain from is useless talk. And that's another interesting pattern to observe. Just as in this coming week, <laughs> please pay attention. Because it's just interesting to see how we can get so caught up in kind of social interaction that words come out of our mouth that are completely useless. It's helpful if we can see the impulse 
you know, catch the intention and then realize, I don't have to say that. It doesn't contribute anything to anyone. The times when I've been able to see that impulse in my mind, when I'm about to just throw some useless words into a conversation, and I'm able to simply settle back, you know, and not say them, again, it's amazing the quality of greater peace in the mind. We're not, we're not driven by that energy. And all of this happens through attention to speech, using the precepts of right speech in this way. This is a big part of our lives. And so it's a tremendously helpful arena in which to awaken. It's a practice, and we can, we can practice it. The last of the precepts the Buddha talked about as a training is not taking intoxicants that cloud the mind. Obviously, if we're on a path of awakening or clarity, we don't want to be continually dulling our mind, dulling our consciousness. So the commitment to the morality of non-harming draws strength from two sources. It draws strength from the quality of metta, the feeling of goodwill. The stronger the metta, the stronger the feelings of goodwill within us, we really have less and less inclination to do anything harmful, to act in a harmful way, either to ourselves or others. Now Ramdas's guru, in Karoli Baba, he had one line which has just resonated in, in just the simplest possible way as, as a guiding principle. Not that one is always able to follow it, but it's a reference point and illuminate those times when we're not following it. He said, do what you do, but never throw anyone out of your heart. And she said, that very simple reminder. So whatever our interactions are with people, and sometimes they're easy and sometimes they're difficult, but can we practice holding them in our hearts, even when there are difficulties? Having that in mind, illuminates those times when we're not doing it, and it helps to wake us up. The second source of commitment to sila, beside metta or loving-kindness, is the understanding of karma, that our actions have consequences, that our actions are leading someplace. And this requires a very careful attention to motivation, the motives that determine the results. When we're paying attention to our motive, the motives behind our acts, what motivates us to speak in a certain way or to do certain things? Is it greed? Is it desire? Is it ill will? Is it kindness? Is it compassion? You know, we all have all of these qualities within us. And so we have to practice paying attention so we can discern what's arising in a particular moment. We see where a particular action is leading karmically, and if we're aware, then we can see, do I want to go there? Is that really where I want to be, to be going? As we consciously make sila 
strong aspects of training and practice in our lives, it becomes a great purifying force for us. And the Buddha talk being the true beauty of a person. We're so concerned as a culture with outer beauty, and it means nothing. The real beauty of a person is the quality and the refinement of sila, that commitment to goodwill, commitment to non-harming. And we see that in people. You know, when that's strong, when people are living with that kind of purity of action, there is a very noticeable feeling of the inner beauty in that person. We respond. The practice of sila gives strength to our aspirations. And we all have different aspirations in our lives. What gives power to the fulfillment of those aspirations is the strength of our sila. Sila is the gift of fearlessness to others because we're saying with our lives, with our actions, you need not fear me. I won't be doing anything that causes you harm. Well, especially in this world today, what a tremendous gift to be given to the world, the gift of trust, the gift of fearlessness. Sila brings the peace of non-remorse. When we're committed to non-harming, the mind settles into non-remorse. We don't feel regret. And the great beauty of this practice is that we draw strength and power from sila from the moment we recommit to it. We've all done many unwholesome things in our lives. But from the time we recommit to this practice and to this life of non-harming, we draw strength from all the power and benefit and beauty of that commitment. So it's available to us right now. Now sometimes the practice is easy. We're just doing what we would do naturally. Sometimes the practice is really difficult. It's really an act, an active decision of renunciation, you know, where we might have an impulse, a desire to do something, and then the awareness comes, that's not skillful. And there's that conscious act, no, I won't do that. That's where the practice of sila becomes a real force for transformation in our lives. We're shaping our lives with integrity. Galway Canal, the poet, in a few lines, he captured for me the beauty of sila. He said, sometimes it's necessary to reteach a thing its loveliness. To tell it in words and in deeds, it is lovely, so that it flowers from within of self-blessing. We all have this loveliness within ourselves. We need to reteach it to ourselves, so that we flower from within of self-blessing. This is the training in Sila, the first, first area of training. The second area of training the Buddha talked about, of bringing practice into our lives and into the world, is the training of what he calls samadhi. And in this context, it's three mental qualities or factors that you've been practicing so intensively here. Factors of energy, of mindfulness, 
concentration. In some way, it's a revelation that we can practice samadhi, these three factors, in our daily life as well as on retreat. We don't have to be on retreat to develop and strengthen them. Kamala is going to discuss tomorrow afternoon a little bit, actually bringing practice and applying it in the midst of daily life. I'll just hit on a few things briefly. Most important, and of all the mantras that have been offered during the retreat, I think maybe this is the most important bit every day. Given the busyness and the activity of our lives, we need to balance that, taking some time a day just to sit, to be quiet, to disengage from the activity for some period of time. Recently I was at a a meeting and there was a fellow uh, practitioner, yogi, Buddhist yogi there, a Western psychiatrist, very busy family, kids, one of these super schedules, he said something which was incredibly inspiring to me. He said that he sat two hours a day, once in the morning and once in the evening, for the last 20 years without missing a day. That was very impressive. And now with the level of commitment, and this was not somebody who was kind of off, you know, living a leisurely life, very busy, very engaged with the world, very engaged with family, he made that commitment and just did it. So that's probably the best case scenario. <laughs> Medium case scenario, sit once a day, every day for the next 20 years worst case scenario. Okay, so this is this is like the real hard cases. You know, who just have a hard time keeping their practice going outside. But this is something everyone can do. This is a commitment that everyone here can absolutely make. That is the commitment to at least get into sitting posture. That's all. That's your commitment. You know, it's not to sit for an hour, it's not to sit for two hours, just get into the posture. And it's amazing, because the real difficulty in keeping the sitting practice regular is not the amount of time. It's that transition. You know, it's just that effort to disengage from the energy of what we're doing to just sit down. So if our commitment just just get into posture, we do just that. I think you will find that once you're sitting in the posture, you stay there for a while. (laughs) It's tremendously important. So I just would really like you to do this mantra a hundred thousand times. Sit every day, sit every day, sit every day. Awareness of the body as we're moving about. You know, we're walking anyway. 
So instead of just having the mind wandering, can we be in our body paying attention to our movement? And being aware of the breath periodically during the day, or being aware of sound. Noticing the thought patterns that keep producing us. The same practice that we've been doing here, we can pay attention to what's going on in our mind outside of retreat. And it's so liberating to keep practicing that insight, the transformative insight of how powerful thoughts are in our lives when they're unnoticed and how transparent they are when we do notice. Why should we live our lives as the slaves of this thought process? They're just conditioned habit patterns of mind, as you have seen now, relentlessly over all these weeks. They just keep churning themselves out. It's not that they come to an end. And they will continue churning themselves out. If we're not aware, then we're driven by them. It really is as if we're a slave to the thoughts. But what's so miraculous is just in the moment of being mindful of we're thinking. The Vatican say they self-liberate. There's nothing much there. And so there's an amazing potential for freedom through being mindful of our thoughts. In the same way being mindful of our emotions. And especially the afflictive ones fear or anger or grief or anxiety or whatever. Thich Nhat Hanh spoke so beautifully about how we should hold the emotions with tenderness. And the example he used was like a sun shining on a flower and how the flower cannot resist the sun that the flower inevitably opens in the sunshine. And we hold the emotions with tenderness and simply shine the sun of mindfulness onto them our heart opens and we can feel it and be with it without drowning in it, without being lost. And so the key practice point here is that as strong emotions come in our lives, as they do, to remember that we need not be so totally lost in the story, but rather we can emphasize noticing our relationship to the emotion. How are we holding it? Are we judging it? Are we condemning it? Are we identified with it? Are we aware of it? Are we holding it with tenderness? That our practice becomes observing how we're relating to it rather than drowning. So this is a practice that really brings great freedom. The third field of training training in wisdom. So the first field of training is sila, all the ways we talked about. The second field of training is samadhi, the development of energy, mindfulness, concentration, in these applications, the meditation in our lives. The third field of training is wisdom. Wisdom is the light that illuminates the dharma. There's an image which so wonderful as how the light of a single candle dispels the darkness of 10,000 years. 
you know, I can, you, know you, you have the same sense of, you know, there can be darkness or confusion or chaos for 10,000 years, and the light of a single candle is enough to start. So no matter how long we've been lost or confused in our own minds, we light that candle of mindfulness, and it dispels that confusion, at least for that moment. Wisdom grows, as we have said many, many times during the retreat, from the direct experience of impermanence, of really seeing directly the changing nature of everything. One day it's 70 degrees, the next night it's a snowstorm. The changes in our bodies, the changes in our relationships, the changes on a momentary level. Change is not a mistake. It's not that something went wrong. It's the nature of all conditioned things. Whatever has the nature to arise, has the nature to pass away. The more we see this, not intellectually and not abstractly, the more we are connected directly in our experience, we're feeling, we're observing the changing nature moment to moment, the more our heart relaxes. That awareness of impermanence, the recognition, the direct experience of it, in very simple ways. I'm not talking about, you know, fantastically deep meditative states. Totally ordinary perception of impermanence. You go from sitting to standing. Your experience of changing sounds, of the in-breath to the out-breath, very simple things. But when we focus on the impermanent changing nature, it deconditions the mind of clinging or grasping. So pay attention to the quality of your mind in those moments when you are consciously recognizing the nature of change. Because you will see that in the mind at that moment, there is no attachment. But the mind is open. It's open by the insight into change. So although it's very ordinary, very everyday, it has this tremendous power to decondition clinging. It's really a doorway to freedom. Wisdom comes from our investigation of suffering. And we can use the situations or experiences of suffering in our lives as a wake-up call. What's happening here? It's to see how often in times of some unease or suffering in my life, it's coming out of some identification with wanting, that wanting is a big cause of suffering. And I found it extremely interesting and insightful when the suffering acts as a wake-up call to actually trace the wanting back energetically you know, and feel the energy of wanting. And I can feel it in kind of the center of my chest, in the heart center is that contraction of wanting, of the tension of wanting. And when I brought my attention back in that way, it's, not, it's no longer focused on what it is that I wanted. I'm more interested in 
the energy of wanting itself, and then seeing in that moment, there's a choice. I can either identify with this wanting or not. So that's a great moment. Now we may not get there each time, but if we practice in this way, it's quite interesting how often we can actually let go of that identification with one and we don't have to suffer often. We can notice our attachment to all our views and opinions as a cause of suffering. teaching which I may have mentioned during the course but uh, it will be a good a good reminder to take out into the world with you as a as a practice of non-suffering as a teaching uh, of Bankai 17th century Zen master in Japan he said don't side with yourself now, in terms of our attachment to all our views and opinions and ideas, we don't side with ourselves. Again, the heart relaxes, it opens, we can hold everything. So wisdom comes from the refinement of our recognition of change, comes from our investigation of suffering, having suffering pique our interest rather than being a cause of despair. The suffering here, what's going on? How is it being created? Wisdom also arises from our growing understanding of emptiness, which I talked about a lot the other night. Really seeing the selfless nature. There's no one behind experience to whom it's happening. The phrase that Manindra used so often, empty phenomena rolling on, this whole mind-body process empty phenomena rolling on. In this regard, it's instructive during the day to watch the moments of selfing. You're going along, everything's flowing smoothly. You know, seeing, hearing, walking, moving, talking, eating, and just in your ordinary life. And then all of a sudden, you know, and you can feel that constriction of self, of I. It might be in a reaction, it might be in a judgment, it might be, you know, wanting. But really pay attention to when that self, that sense of self emerges. Because right there, we can look, we can investigate, we can see what are we identifying with in that moment. And practice letting go. These are the three fields of training that the Buddha talked of in terms of how our life becomes our practice and how our practice is our life. We train in sila, we train in samadhi, we train in wisdom. So in the last three and a half minutes, I want to talk just a little bit about two different ways or templates of practice, and this is a little preview of One Dharma book I've been working on. 
guess I kind of have to get it in. We can practice all this from the perspective of what I'm calling building from below. And in the building from below model of practice, we're really in the experience of our suffering, and we're looking at our attachments and how to let go of our attachments. We're really right there in the nitty-gritty of our experience, seeing how the attachment is causing suffering and how we can practice letting go of it, and how it's really through the insights into the three characteristics, permanence, suffering, selflessness, that helps the mind to let go. That's one side of practice, the building from below, right from where we are. The other side of practice we can call swooping from above. And the swooping from above side is that practice where we get an intuition or a glimpse of the innate wakefulness of mind, the innate open, empty awareness of the mind. And our practice from that perspective is clarifying that view, clarifying that understanding of the innate openness or awareness, and then stabilizing that. So we really need to see very clearly and honestly in our practice which of these perspectives is most skillful at any particular time. Not that one is higher or lower. It's really a question of what works. What works to free the mind from suffering. If our minds are often lost in distraction, we're just caught up in our thoughts and our emotions and hard to be at rest anywhere, the instruction will rest in the natural purity of your mind. It probably won't be that helpful. You know, we'll just be spaced out. Doesn't have that much meaning for us. It would be much more helpful to actually develop steadiness in our concentration and to work directly with the afflictive emotion and to come to a place of freedom in that way. But it may also be that at times we're very caught up in self-judgment, judging the defilements that are arising in the mind, judging ourselves for having them, really caught up in effortful striving. Well, at that time, kind of the swooping from above method may be really helpful, reminding us of that place of inherent freedom, that it's already here as a way of relaxing the heart, relaxing that effortful struggle. This is not using the teaching just as a way to make ourselves more comfortable psychologically, but rather to offer glimpses or intuitions of that place of openness, of emptiness. The Tibetan master Marpa, who was the teacher of Milarepa, he expressed the, the power of this swooping from above method really well. He said, in the great teachings, defilements are like lines drawn in water. In myself, though, they are like lines carved in stone. Fortunately, even stones have the nature of clear light. And so that's kind of the swooping from above 
it's really understanding the essential emptiness and transparency even of the defilements. So even as we are proceeding in our practice with all the various struggles, we see or connect with their essential emptiness. Given that it's the last night, I'm just going to take five more minutes. (laughs) Each of these ways of practice, each of these ways of practice, the building from below, the swooping from above, they each have their own strengths and dangers. And two Greek myths, really illuminate the dangers of each approach and also point to a way out of the dangers. Remember the story of Icarus, you know, who was, I think his father, I may not have this exactly right, but he was, he was the guy who made, who built wings of wax, you know, and his father, in order to fly, and his father warned him not to go too close to the sun. But he didn't listen, of course and he flew too close to the sun, and the wax melted, and he fell precipitously to the earth. Well, if we're swooping from above without the proper understanding, without the proper teaching, without the proper guidance, we can hear all these words about the innate purity of mind and just rest in the great open perfection and innate wakefulness. But unless there's a real grounding in experience and proper guidance in it, it'd be easy to kind of be flying too close to the sun, you know, and just have the wax melt and crash to the earth. So that kind of teaching, it really needs some very careful guidance so we don't just live in illusion about it. That's the danger on that side. The danger from the other side, the the building from below, is expressed in the the myth of Sisyphus. He was condemned by the gods to endlessly push this boulder up the hill. Well, this is Stephen Mitchell, the poet and writer. We have this great poem about the myth of Sisyphus. We tend to think of Sisyphus as a tragic hero, condemned by the gods <coughs> to shoulder his rock sweatily up the mountain and again up the mountain forever. The truth is, Sisyphus is in love with the rock. He cherishes every roughness and every ounce of it. He talks to it, sings to it, it has become the mysterious other. He even dreams of it as he sleepwalk, sleepwalks upward. Life is unimaginable without it looming always above him like a huge gray moon. He doesn't realize that at any moment he is permitted to step aside, let the rock hurtle to the bottom, and go home. But sometimes in the building from below, we get so caught up in the struggle with our defilements and so caught up in our suffering, beyond having lost connection with the innate wakefulness of mind the essential purity of the mind, the inherent freedom of the mind. You know, that we forget, 
we get attached to our suffering, we forget that we can step aside, let the rock hurtle to the bottom, and go home. So the highest teaching is not one view or another. It's really to see at any time in our practice, at any particular time, which perspective will help us. Sometimes we build from above, so we build from below, sometimes we swoop from above. These are not in opposition. They actually complement each other and help us on this path of freedom. Whether we're building from below, swooping from above, or it is most likely some combination of the two, the goal remains the same, and that is the heart-mind of awakening. Now the words are all different, but it's really freedom, which is the vital issue of our lives. And out of this fertile ground of understanding, out of the fertile ground of emptiness, there arises the very rare and precious flower of bodhicitta. Out of our training in sila, out of our training in samadhi, out of our training in wisdom, employing these two perspectives in practice, out of that comes this most noble aspiration in our lives, that our practice and our lives be for the benefit not only of ourselves, but of all beings. And it's this aspiration which can become the guiding energy of our lives. And that's what we can bring from our practice here into our life in the world. In the world. I'd just like to close with a haiku that's particularly appropriate as we're ending the retreat making the transition in silence and speech from our life on retreat to our life in the world from the master Basho the temple bell stops but the sound keeps coming out of the flowers
happiness and liberation of all beings. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.